You're listening to That's Pretty Dark. The podcast where we talk about all of the entertainment that scared us as children and still haunts us as adults. So grab your flashlight and join us as we take a frightfully nostalgic look over our shoulders and under our beds and in our closets. And together we'll realize, well, that's pretty that's dark. Pretty dark. Beginning in the late 1980s and continuing on through the 90s, there was an obvious thread woven through much of the entertainment that was catered to children of all ages. A dark thread, one tinged black by death and frayed with decay. But the decay of what exactly? And what is it that died? Or who? There was a heavy reliance on themes of danger, death, and the dark with one very familiar emotion at the center of it all, fear. Today, we'll be exploring where that dark thread of fear came from, and not only why it existed, but also why it was allowed to wrap itself around us so tightly, like a string tied around our fingers to keep us from forgetting something we ought not forget. The simple answer? A healthy dose of fear was better than the alternative. Boom. I feel that. And it's awful, kind of, because it is essentially not just scaring children into submission, but scaring children into safety. Yes. Basically. Exactly. Which feels so backwards. And it's like, is that even effective? It's just an evolution of face-off. Oh, hey, guys. We're recording. Yeah, this is our podcast. That's pretty dark. That's pretty dark. I'm Christian Mott. And I'm Caitlin Andrews. Yeah, not <laughs> not paying attention. And I'm paying attention, but I'm in a, a spiral of grocery delivery struggle. That's oh, all. God. I'm fine. I'll be fine. We're ordering groceries. Our roofs are on fire. Well, thankfully not. No, it was just water vapor. The exact opposite. Anyway, thanks for listening. Um, we were going to just start with Are You Afraid of the Dark? And then we were like, what if we did a bunch of other stuff first? Pretty much just... <laughs> completely so. <laughs> changed our mind and knowing that we're going to be releasing in October just it opens the door for so much yes so, there's going to be a lot more to this podcast than meets the eye basically or the ear <laughs> we've decided on some categories to discuss we're hoping that there will be something for everybody that even kind of slightly relates to the millennial exactly struggle and and growing up as a millennial the episode we're doing today, mm -hmm. we had this conversation a few years ago, you and me. Oh, yeah. It was like late one night sitting on my couches in my living room, and we got really into because I had just listened to uh, In the Dark podcast, and mm -hmm. it touched on a lot of the, uh, the, I don't know, heavier sort of pop culture things that were happening in the 80s and like kind of why it got so dark. Man, I do remember that now that you say that. I hadn't thought about it. Yeah. <laughs> we're doing a whole podcast on this and that conversation hadn't re-entered my mind. But yeah, we like... See? We got really in our feelings about... Yeah. All of it. <laughs> yeah. And this is why... this that's That night, that conversation is the main inspiration for this episode he's been texting me you guys saying you know page number updates and 10 like hours yesterday where he is this. and what he's doing he's got a lot of good stuff to say yeah i'm very excited about it and and you mentioned this to me earlier yeah so it's like this stuff informs what content was made for children and why it was made yes. so basically this information is going to help us in all our future breakdowns yes we're going to better understand why it happened exactly this is a lot of how and why one why there was so much content mm -hmm. and why it was so freaked up yeah it was so dark 
A lot of it, not all of it, but a lot of it was. Pretty dark. So that's what we're here to explore and figure out today. Keep hanging out with us. And so without any further ado, let's jump in to part one of two of the dark origins of children's programming. Our timeline begins in the 1950s and 60s, in the afterglow of World War II and Korea and like winning wars and like America's great and like mm-hmm. all this stuff, right? So there was business to do and business would be good. They had products to sell, money to make. You know, life had been hard enough. So now people have decided, let's make it livable. So entertainment in general was, you know, there was a huge boom at that point. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's it's Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You know, you're not worried about your life and like rationing and war. And now suddenly you can watch TV at night and laugh at comedy. Right. Again. Exactly. So desperate for some semblance of peace and normalcy, the... Uh, quote-unquote, nuclear family, became the most popular family structure at this time. It was a structure that was extraordinarily idealized and romanticized in pop culture at the time, portrayed in motion pictures and television programs to the point that we still fawn over 50s and 60s nostalgia to this day. For sure. Examples of this include Marvelous Miss Maisel. Mm, Excellent. And Mad Men. And speaking of Mad Men, one industry that really boomed in this era was advertising. Yes. (laughs) Taking the nuclear family into account, companies had products that they needed to sell to the everyday working man and to the everyday housewife and to the everyday child, Mm -hmm. of course. I mean, cash cow. (laughs) And boy, did they sell products to children. (laughs) That's right. It was funny because like, believe it or not, people used to be concerned about the amount of advertising they were consuming. Like it was like something they were, it was like air they were breathing. Like they weren't concerned about uh, cigarette smoke they were inhaling. They were concerned about the amount of advertising their eyes were inhaling. I mean, Isn't that crazy? I am too, <laughs> as as are we. And it's worse now than it ever, like to, to think that the very beginning of it, everybody was like, this doesn't seem great. And then now we live in a world where we can't take two steps without an ad. It's everywhere. Internet. In person, doesn't matter. Says someone who works in mar- work in marketing, <laughs> and I, my entire living has been based yeah, on. So you know all of this, yeah. You know firsthand how how much it is. I took I took my advertising classes in college. Had to do case studies on the effectiveness of ads and or like the ethics of ads and how ethical is it to create a need that a person doesn't really need, but you make them think that they do. Yeah, all of that stuff. Ooh. So you'll have some input to give here because I I can't get into all that stuff. Society in general was not thrilled by it, but it was like, you know, capitalist necessary evil. Yeah. It sold, it pushed products. It got things out there. And people, you know what? It worked because people bought them. Right. So by this point, especially in the 1960s, mid to late 1960s, nearly every household had a television. And advertisers in this time realized what TV could do for their industry. Uh, which was a whole lot, Mm -hmm. Uh, especially when it came to products for children. Uh, Children, as has always been the case, tend to dictate much of how a family spends their money, mostly food and entertainment, which in my life is majority of uh, (laughs) my existence. Same. If it's not work, it's food and entertainment. So this phenomenon of children making decisions in the household is called pester power, <laughs> which I think is so funny. And it involves a lot of whining and the getting of one's own way. Yeah. Sounds a lot like Mike's girlfriend, am I right? <laughs> <laughs> 
It's <laughs> a lot like Yikes. many people that I've met in my life. Sounds like many people I've known. Yes. Um, so advertisers recognized this mysterious and despicable power children had over their households. Uh, so it only made sense. I mean, the tantrum at the grocery store, like the classic. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It only made sense for advertisers to start putting their energy into television commercials, seeing how so many more children in throughout the 60s were beginning to be raised more by the TV than like their own parents. Um, mm -hmm. And this is a scenario that would become more and more common with the increase in divorce rates and households where both parents had to work. Um, and therefore, the growth and development of a generation of children that were predominantly left to their own whims and devices, yeah. fabricating a personal sense of independence. Man, you just described my childhood. I mean, not to say my parents weren't <laughs> there at all, but like TV plus internet is where we came in. So This type of child was known as a latchkey kid. Mm -hmm. And uh, we were latchkey kids yeah. sometimes. I was, throughout the summer, I was latchkey. And then when my sister... My oldest sister began driving. I mean, I was probably in fourth or fifth grade at that point. We all became latchkey kids because my mom didn't have to be home. Right. We could go home whenever. We had keys. So a lot of this, I feel like, should pique your, like, your sociological interest. Oh, it does. <laughs> Don't worry. So the, the definition of latchkey kid, according to like Wikipedia, was any kid who returns from school to an empty home or is left alone in the home for any length of time with no supervision while the parent is either working or running errands, and it can be any age of child alone or with siblings. Mm -hmm. This became super problematic. It was just this rampant thing that really couldn't be helped because this was sort of before a lot of outside the home, like uh, childcare mm -hmm. uh, you know, facilities were available. The, and like, The whole shift was happening with housewives and going to work and the, all of that. Yes. There was a gap between when that began to happen and when people realized, mm -hmm. oh, but if, if they have to work, I mean, still society expects women to do everything. Yeah. So imagine how much worse that was when, oh, if you want to go back to work, then let's see you go back to work and still be, you know, handling what you have to handle right. kind of thing. Like yeah. society hates women. Society does not want to help women. <laughs> and, you know, magnify that in the 60s, 70s, 80s. And then that's when you start to see the crumbling. Yeah, it is, it is really kind of incredible to, to look at. Um, and like not everybody could afford babysitters either. Like sometimes it was just like, you be here, you sit here, you don't move. I'll be home at this time. Mm -hmm. uh, so the first generation of children to be exposed to this level of neglect and yeah, quote unquote independence was Generation X, mm -hmm. uh, also known as kids who grew up in the late 60s through the 70s and into the very early 80s. Mm -hmm. You know, like we just said, latchkey kids still exist today. Um, it's it's hasn't gone away. Oh, no. I, I don't really know all the statistics on this, but they say that like they were the least parented and least nurtured generation in U.S. history. I don't. I guess that's true. I, I think, don't know the numbers. I mean, on now that. you have the helicopter parents and everything. Like, yeah. I think moving forward, the neglect is different. I'm sure we'll get there, but it's just a different kind of thing. Uh, probably, yeah. It's a different kind of neglect, but. There have been a lot of studies into the effect this had on the development of that generation specifically. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's super interesting, and I highly recommend anybody looking it yeah. up if it's if it's interesting to anybody. I mean, it makes it makes a lot of sense. It you know when you start to think about like if you're our age or millennial, you either have friends if you're an older millennial or your parents maybe were part of gen x right it makes a lot of things make sense <laughs> it really does it checks out and there's so much more there like i can't even begin to unpack all of that i mean a lot of the stuff i'm skimming the surface 
So if any of this interests you, there's way more to be found out there sure. than I could fit into. But it's a good outline to get us to where we're going for our podcast. So it, it sets us up for success here with what we're going to be talking about. Sociology. This is sociology and psychology, and it's everything that made the 80s and 90s possible. What they were. Trust me. It all ties together. I'm Andy Bernard. It all connects. It all connects. <laughs> so depending on the child, this experience had different results, right? Mm -hmm. Some children matured more quickly than others. Uh, they took care of needs in the home. Uh, they might raise their siblings, you know, whatever. Some people were fine. Right. You know, but maturing that early has its own consequences. But, you know, whatever. We're not talking about that today. Other kids didn't take it so well, resulting in an increase in drug and alcohol abuse, peer pressure scenarios such as taking up smoking, cigarettes or smoking doobies or like whatever. <laughs> um, there's an increase in uh, sexual promiscuity. Um, or other behavioral issues derived from a lack of adult attention and intervention. Yeah. Which, I mean, looking back, I'm like, oh, yeah, that's a common trope. Like the kid in the 70s and the 80s be like, you can't tell me what to do. Mm -hmm. Mom and dad, you're dumb. Really, the 80s, the 80s is where that really yeah. kicked in. It's that absent parent anger that like I raised myself. You, you know, can't tell you're, me. You're yeah, anything. never here. And now you're going to tell me what to do just because you're in the same house as me. No, it's, like, it's a lack of here. respect. The respect was never nurtured. It was yeah. never created at all. And this is why a, a lot of people, the boomers thought a lot of like, yes, there's no respect, right? You know, children did these days don't know. Mm -hmm. It's like, well, because you left them alone. For Honestly, that's why the kids these days, kids these days, that's really where all that came from. And it affected mm -hmm. us. <laughs> oh, it, oh, we were made responsible. We had to answer for it. Yep. I mean, like, honestly, because that by that point, all the boomers thought this is how everyone after me is going to be. Basically. And we had to deal with it, which is why we're the last responsible generation of this, Actually, this yeah. great nation. Sorry, you Gen Zers. No, they're, they love it. They don't care. Many kids and teenagers in this time were bored and just turned to troublemaking because they needed something to do. That angst, it's hormones. I mean, honestly, what are you going to do? Mm -hmm. You're stuck at home. You're going to get into some kind of trouble. Mm -hmm. Some kids developed low self-esteem issues and depression from being left alone so often and for such long periods. That makes that checks out. That makes a lot of sense. Yep. Others were simply afraid, maybe even traumatized by certain experiences while left alone, ghosts or otherwise, <laughs> or you know, just you know, child predators. General anxiety of being in charge when you're not ready to be. Right. So other studies revealed that staying home alone was great and should happen as part of a child's development. I don't know. Yeah, I don't um, think that's true. But I think every person's personality is different. So some people, like you said, responded well. Some people didn't. And that's still yeah. going to be true forever and ever and always. Like some people will handle it well and some people won't. I mean, I remember um, I took like a babysitting class when I was 13, like Red Cross, you know, to be certified so that I could babysit. Yeah. And at 13 years of age, which now I understand is a legitimate child and I should probably have a babysitter myself. You know, I was staying alone. I was yeah. staying with like young kids and toddlers and – you know, I didn't, I ended up babysitting as much as I expected to, but I think it's also because of my anxiety. Yeah. You know, when in the Red Cross training, they're like, here's how you Heimlich a baby. Like, here's how you, you know, all this stuff. And I'm like, I don't ever want to yeah. be in that position. So no. a lot of people feel like, you know, you're, I was glad I was prepared, but at the same time, it didn't make me want to put myself in those situations. Yeah. There's a difference between being prepared for life scenarios and then being made responsible for life exactly. scenarios. Exactly. That's like life and death. It's just too much. Yeah. For for a thirteen year old. And yeah, so then I'm. It's in my mind all the time. 
these children could die and it would be my fault. And I mean, that's, again, that's my personality. That's my anxiety coming to the, you know, coming to the table, but it's heavy. I took out entire chunks of paragraphs here that was looking into exactly what you just said, like all the legal issues of like, Mm -hmm. what happens if kids are left home alone and one of them dies like yeah. who's who's responsible for this Can or like even like library latchkey kids yeah it's well i mean the 14 f- year old kid the the parent can the can parent you? be held responsible for their neglect mm-hmm. child neglect wow yeah i mean there were a lot of legal issues with all this but it was brand new things so they were like how do we deal with this these are new cr- yeah. quote unquote crimes because there's always been a mom at home and suddenly there isn't yeah right so uh kids latched <laughs> kids latched onto <laughs> Uh, this extreme level of independence. And it actually became such a problem that many cities had youth curfews to make sure kids and teenagers weren't roaming the streets at night, getting into trouble, or putting themselves into danger, leading to the routine yet haunting public service announcement. Do you know where your children are? Yep. Have you ever heard that? Oh, I have. Absolutely, yes. I saw it on TV when I was a kid. Me too. All the time. I remember like, it came on TV. I like looked at my dad. <laughs> yeah. and he didn't look at me, and I was like, "You mean there's a scenario in which you may not know where I am?" Right. I don't like that. Yeah, that was so scary right. for me as a kid. That's very um, what's the word? Like you're you're suspended out there. You just have no no tether. Like yeah. you're floating. It was, it was terrifying. What if my parents don't know where I am? It was yeah. a nightmare uh, thought process of like that sounds like something I would dream about. That doesn't seem real. <laughs> yeah. You know, like getting lost at the grocery store. Right. You know, that was a big fear of mine. The flip side of your like haunting public service announcement, I can see all of that being very real for me as well. But mm-hmm. I remember hearing that PSA on TV and my dad would just be like, yep. <laughs> he would like answer the TV <laughs> like so, a dad. So funny. Be like right here, you know, and I'm like nine and I'm like, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, you know where I am. Where else would I be? Like I'm at my house because <laughs> I'm nine. Okay, so despite parents having to be reminded that they needed to check on their children, and despite the presumption that uh, teenagers were out there just roaming the streets, uh, joining gangs and you know getting up to all sorts of no good mischief, mm-hmm. they were not entirely forgotten. There were always activist groups trying to promote the safety and the general well-being of America's youth. One of these activist groups, Action for Children's Television, aka ACT, Mm-hmm. With this increase in concern for the bombardment of advertisements seen by children, and even worse, advertisements catered to children specifically, mm-hmm. ACT was formed in 1968 in Massachusetts to improve the quality of children's programming. The first show they targeted was this very famous show called Romper Room. Have you ever heard of that? Uh, no. I've heard of ACT because I studied it in my advertising class. Okay, cool. I've never heard of Romper Room. All right. I want to do a full episode on ACT one day, like down the road. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot to think about. I want to do a breakdown of how they directly influenced, not just like what I'm talking about today, but like specifically throughout the decades that they right. existed. I mean, because you imagine if there's a, fa- a foundation like this that's like worried about what kids are watching, mm-hmm. then a lot of the things that we watched in the 90s wouldn't have ever been made. <laughs> oh, no, <laughs> you know? definitely. definitely. That's the thought anyway, but clearly, clearly some things unraveled a little bit. Things changed. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So Romper Room, 
this was a show for children, uh, the kind where, you know, like they had a bunch of kids on the stage, like with the host lady as she's like trying to get them to pay attention. They look bored to death. You know, they're looking around, picking their noses and stuff. One of those shows. Mm-hmm. Um, they had the romper room prayer. Mm-hmm. God is great. God is good. Let us thank him for our food. Amen. Yeah. That's it. Okay. So that's where that came from. I'm sure I said it wrong, but that's. And they probably I had all the kids before. say it. And that's why it's always kind of in a sing songy like <laughs> cadence. Yeah. Yeah. There was also a magic mirror moment that everybody remembers very well. It's where the host would hold up a mirror that it's like a see-through thing where you can see her talking. She's mm-hmm. talking to the camera, but two children, and she's saying actual kids' names and talking to them through the TV, which is super sketchy and schizophrenic and scary. Kids' names, like just naming off Bobby, Billy, Robbie, She'd be like, Johnny. Little John, I saw, I saw he had a great day yesterday. And little Susie, oh, she's having a good day today. Right. And, but it, oh, this was not like people didn't write in. No, it was it was pure, just guessing. Random. Okay. Like just you checking. hoped you heard your name on Romper right. Room because they were talking that makes to sense. you. Yep. I guarantee you my dad watched this show. This makes a lot yeah. of sense. And yeah. uh I, <laughs> I didn't think I'd get into this, but I'm gonna read this real quick. I when I was looking it up, you know how like Google provides questions that people have asked. You can like click on their question mm-hmm. and like see yeah. uh, what their answer was. And one of the questions was, did Romper Room ever say my name? Aww. It says, sadly never heard my name called Boo Hoo. I do remember Romper Room. My name was never called, though, much to my chagrin. That was a good life lesson, however, as it prepared me for a life of disappointment and unfulfilled dreams. Right there with you. <laughs> I get it. I was like, I feel that so hard. That is so real. Um, anyway, I thought that was hilarious. That is funny. I was laughing to myself the other day a lot. <laughs> the original host lady, her name was Nancy Claster. So the Clasters created this, a husband and wife team. I don't like that name. This is an important detail. Romper Room had a line of children's toys that they would try to promote during the show. Mm-hmm. So the host lady would like go from playing a game or singing a song to like, and here's this toy. You can buy this at whatever store and like whatever. Okay. Telling kids, hey, you you want this. You, want you this? need this. Tell your parents to buy this for you. Mm-hmm. So this is why. You know, ACT targeted the show because they were specifically trying to just like make money and sell, sell things to kids. Yeah, ethics. So, you know, this is nothing new. Like product placement had been around for a while. It's very common. Like hell, soap operas uh, got their name because they were produced by soap companies like Procter & Gamble. <laughs> which Yeah, I actually did know they'd that. They've been selling products on the radio since the 30s. Yeah. So it was a common thing. As long as there have been uh, companies and brand names and products to sell, there's been advertising and product placement. The reason it's super important to note that Romper Room had a line of children's toys is because in 1969, Romper Room Inc. was bought by Hasbro. Ah. Ah. The first indicator, our audience goes, oh, there is a point. It's all connected. (laughs) But yeah, now we're cooking with grease. Oh my God. (laughs) We had a whole discussion on grease versus gas the other day. We sure did. Are you cooking with gas or grease? grease. We think it's grease, but you know. We think it's grease. We're Southern. We can't help it. We love Southern grease. (laughs) Uh, So, but more on Hasbro later. Now, ACT didn't like this whole show, this whole shebang. Because they thought the host of an educational children's show should be focused on teaching children, not selling them products. Mm -hmm. This was just the beginning. ACT also went after some of the more violent shows for children, such as Space Ghost, which I watched Space Ghost Coast to Coast when I was a kid, which was a faux cartoon Space Ghost. uh, Like he was like a like a 
talk show host. Yeah, I, that's ringing a bell. So an, other examples were Birdman in the Galaxy Trio and like the Fantastic Four cartoon. You know, like just really not that violent looking back compared to today's cartoons. Oh, no. But, um, or even Looney Tunes, which is shocking because those were around before these. Yeah, but and Looney anyway, Tunes is very violent. Very uh, reliant on violence. Synonymous with just absolute violence yeah. and chaos. Yes. But there were so many other shows that were, you know, basically pulled off the air or they were targeted. Mm-hmm. But the, all of this unrest, you know, whether things actually happened or didn't happen is sort of, I again, we're going to do a breakdown, hopefully, episode on ACT one day and see how things actually worked. But when these shows were sort of pushed aside, it's like Hydra. Every time they cut a show, something better took its place, such as like Dastardly and Muttley. And Scooby-Doo, where are you? Oh, I love Scooby-Doo. Although it wasn't as violent as these other shows, it did rely heavily on a child's sense of fear, poking and prodding it at every turn, ingraining into their young minds that it's always us humans who are the actual monsters of this world. Amen. And yes, we will be covering Scooby-Doo, Where Are You, one day. Don't worry. Man, love Scooby-Doo. I'm so excited about it. There's so much psychology. (laughs) So much there. It's technically not from when we were kids, but it aired a lot. We all watched it. And it's part of our, what is is zeitgeist the right word? Part of the cultural understanding of cartoons. It was there. We all watched it. We all watched it. Man, it's, I don't Um, know if Rocky and Bullwinkle is in the same vein or if it was in the 80s. I don't know when that came out, but as you're saying all this, that yeah. show is in this group for me. It's it is. It's all it's all like Hanna Barbara or Barbera, however you Hanna say Barbera. it. It's all Warner Brothers. It's all connected. They're all work together yeah. to make the same stuff. Um, stuff. Yeah, it's in there. I'm not sure where Rocky and Bullwinkle is from. My guess would be like 70s. I think so too. Maybe even 60s. Honestly, it's super old. It's old. But that was the important I thing. Like is the that villain. The villain. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah, in Rocky and Bullwinkle. Oh no, we'll cover him one day. Mm. All right. So. Not only did ACT step in and literally begin changing children's programming, like, immediately, but they also invested a lot of time, effort, and probably a lot of money throughout the 1970s in psychological studies on what types of effects advertising had on the developing brains of children. Mm, Yeah, important stuff. You probably know this because you studied it, Mm -hmm. but to our audience, they found that children cannot differentiate between a cartoon and a commercial. And the younger you were, the harder it was for you to differentiate. Yep. This was a psychological fact that advertisers relied on completely because they needed their commercials to have as much of an impact on children as the shows themselves did. If not more. If not more. The shows weren't asking them to do something, but the ads had a call to action. So it needed to be even more immersive. Yeah, they're like, you mean you found... Okay, good. Very good. <laughs> right. How this, is this a bad thing? <laughs> they were basically like, this is good news. Let's squash ACT as soon as possible. Mm-hmm. So ACT requested that the Federal Communications Commission, aka the FCC, they asked that they regulate these advertisements. Because of their findings, they saw it as an attack on children. Mm-hmm. It was taking advantage of kids, honestly. Mm-hmm. In other words, maybe exploiting them. Maybe mm-hmm. using their youth and their vulnerability against them. 100%. Like so many other adults and other people were about to talk about, and it gets real, real dark. Oh. Act, they're sort of their whole thing was they, they suggested guidelines such as a minimum of 14 hours of programming for children, mm-hmm. no commercial breaks during children's shows, wow. and children's show hosts couldn't sell products. 
that's kind of a no-brainer. Like, imagine if, like, halfway through a Blue's Clues episode, Steve is just like, all right, now over here, uh, you yourself can buy your own handy-dandy handy notebook. notebook. Yeah. Uh, just go to the Toys R Us mm-hmm. uh, and tell your parents you need it. It's only nineteen ninety nine. Steve told me to, Mom. They can call in. You need this. You need a handy-dandy note. Can you imagine that? Like you need To be one, a part of my team. To be like every other kid. To and fit find in. Blue's you Clues. Need. Ooh. Yeah. Exactly. You got to find the clues. It's a lot. I mean, for all I know, Steve did that, and I don't remember. I don't think but. Steve did that. They definitely <laughs> sold the merchandise. Oh no, they had, they had products, Steve didn't but there say were, it. Yeah. there were rules in place by the '90s mm-hmm. that changed how they could do it. But I just can't imagine uh, the the host of the show just all of a sudden being like, "Hey, kid, you want to be important and cool? Mm-hmm. Uh, you want your friends to like you? Buy this." Like My Nick God. Jr. shows didn't have ad breaks. Right. When we were little, you know, those right. didn't did have not. ad breaks. The ad breaks didn't come until the like cartoons for elementary age kids. Right. And middle school kids. I'm not sure how much of that was regulation. And I don't know how much of that was just Nickelodeon being super kick ass and knowing right. yeah. what to okay. what to promote for children because they had their own specific child oriented agenda that they wanted to they wanted to they were always kind of trying to operate above board quote unquote probably they tell us that that's what they wanted to do and Mm. i i I tend to believe them because they did it right um with all these uh, guidelines and recommendations for children's programming they also said and this is still I, i didn't have a specific timeline this could still be 70s they wanted shows to announce when the program was pausing for a commercial break. They needed to let people know or kids know, mm-hmm. you know, this show will be back, back after, these, after messages. these messages. This is not the show, by the way. This was the first time bumpers were were invented to sort of show, all right, cool, this is going to pause. We're going to go to commercial break. And yeah. when we come back. I think I did study that in my advertising class. Like that's yeah. where that came from is the need to differentiate. Yeah, they had to differentiate. So this started way back then. It paused. And then it came back when we were kids. So yeah. we'll get to that okay. in a little bit. I'll, this is where a lot of all the, this is the stuff that I found that I love so much. Okay. It explains all the how and why. So timeline wise right now, we're moving from the seventies into the eighties. Yes. It is now 1980. Okay. Reagan was just elected president. Mm-hmm. One of his first moves was to appoint a guy named Mark Fowler as the new head of the FCC. And one of Fowler's first moves was to completely deregulate everything that had been in place up until that time. Yeah. So he he claimed that the marketplace should be open and that children should decide what children want to watch. Either it works or it doesn't. Let the chips fall where they may. It was basically was like, it doesn't matter if it's good for them or not. If they like it, you'll win. If they don't like it, you're out. Man. That was it. He thought that nobody should stand in, in the way of companies trying to sell a product. Capitalism. It's just capitalism. Baby. But uh, We're in the late stage now of what that did and Late stage capitalism. Mm-hmm. Yes. In essence, what this meant for ACT is that all of their efforts up until this point were rendered totally inconsequential. Mm-hmm. Null, void, done. Sorry, ACT. Sorry, ACT. You're a real class act. Oh, you tried. My God. I don't know. ACT fought as hard as they could. They started a task force. And compiled, you know, 60,000 pages of expert testimony from child psychologists, nutritionists, and educators. But the sad reality, especially in America and probably everywhere else, is that 60,000 pages were nothing compared to the $16 million raised to lobby against the task force. Yeah. 
Money talks experts don't. God bless the USA. And here we are in 2021 where that is more true than ever. Or as true as ever, I should mm. say. Red, white, and blue. These colors don't run. Mm. You don't like them, you can run. Fowler won, veritably signing the death warrant for many educational and beloved shows. Among these classics were Captain Kangaroo and Schoolhouse Rock, which I remember watching uh, video like VHS tapes of in school. I absolutely love everything Schoolhouse Rock related. I can still sing every single song. I watched them. I mean, so I think I don't know if we will have mentioned it up until this point since we don't know when things are airing, but I was homeschooled. So Schoolhouse Rock was a cornerstone of my education, mm. as was Captain Kangaroo, although by that point they were making Captain Kangaroo CD-ROMs. Okay. So I had some of those. See, I don't know anything about Captain Kangaroo. Yeah. But I never, I don't think I watched the show and I didn't know where this Captain Kangaroo came from, but I think they had like educational computer games. That makes sense. In the 90s. Yeah. There, there were actually a lot of really good educational computer games from oh, in, in general. Jump I played start, a bunch of them. Jumpstart oh. that whole series. God. Man. There was even a time in the 80s where uh, Oregon Trail was considered an educational computer <laughs> game. Which, you know, not really, but okay. Teachers didn't know it wasn't educational. Sure. <laughs> they were like, oh, this is great. You're going to learn about the Oregon Trail. <laughs> Perfect. I'm sure kids told them, hey, yeah, it's super mm-hmm. informative. Yeah, let us It's play a history it. lesson. And they're like, oh, okay, sweet. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Man. Schoolhouse Rock, though. Shout out to Schoolhouse Rock, because without Schoolhouse Rock, I don't think I would know my multiplication tables. Yeah. So, uh, it just, had to be a song or I would not have learned I it. I know what a bill is now, <laughs> but I just remember being yes, like, I'm only a I guess your name is Bill. And I got as far as Capitol Hill. Wow. Look at you. But it's a long, long... Okay, anyway. Which is great, because so much of what we're about to get into is Bill's... Oh, here we go. Well, look at that little segue. You don't even know. Like, you keep hitting with all the segues. <laughs> we we're not quite there yet, so it's a it's well, a, it was early. too premature. soon. You're a little premature. You know. Like your birth. Yeah, I was going to say, but, my whole life has been um, premature, so... Yeah. All right. It's 1980, and all things go. Wow. So let's all take a deep the breath. Wild West. As you gulp down your water, don't breathe while you're drinking. I'm your not going to drink. No, I'll choke. I choke all the time. So this is when some, if not all, of our favorite earliest childhood memories were born. I really don't want to have to thank Ronald Reagan for anything, but I mean, oh, hey. you have to. Ugh. He directly caused this to be possible, right? Wow. Manufacturers and advertisers could now do just about anything they wanted. Uh, This is why we were constantly bombarded with commercials for toys, cartoons, other shows, candy, junk food, fast food, you name it. If it was colorful and desirable and bad for children, this is when it was finally allowed to be on television. There we go. Before we begin the episode, I was trying to think of like examples of commercials that I still cannot stop thinking about. (laughs) And like My Little Pony, Mm -hmm. like that that jingle. My Little Pony. My yeah, exactly. Phone. And it came on every commercial break. I swear to God. Yeah, they did. Every time the first commercial was My Little Pony and they they, I just wanted to pull my hair out. I mean, I still feel that way about a lot of ads yeah. like on Hulu and it doesn't it doesn't go away. For the sure. feeling is not gone. But like Sock and Boppers was another one. Sock and Boppers. And there are a bunch of other ones that were constantly played. I mean, it was perfect. Perpetual, mm-hmm. the same ones over. I mean, I remember like Gak. Gak, yes, Flom. And I remember Flom. All of any of the infomercial ones that were like, call this number to buy the, um, what is it called? Where the, I mean, it's not a toy from the 80s or 90s. It's much older, but the Spirograph. Oh, I don't know. Yeah, those ones. The markers that were like invisible. Oh, right. And I yes, can think of a million. Yes. Light bright. <laughs> I, 
Light bread is my absolute favorite childhood toy. I know, but like, so look at us having like all these happy, nostalgic memories over this like (laughs) disgusting, unethical advertisement. Thanks, Reagan. (laughs) And that's why we are the way we are. That's pretty dark. If you if you were wondering, if you ever thought for one second, and and we were like, huh, I wonder why there was so much colorful nonsense when I was a kid. Why Why was there so much? And why am I why am I so endeared to it? Yeah, why do I love it so much? Because it was designed that way. Yes. It was allowed legally and it was designed to make you want to have every single bit of it. Mm-hmm. You're, it wasn't because you were vulnerable to this. I mean, you were vulnerable. They used it against you and it was against your will. Mm-hmm. And they made things and told you that you had to have it. Mm-hmm. This is just advertising. But it was to children. And this is why we're so screwed up as a generation. Yep. Anyway, so this statistic is fun. There was a 300% increase in cartoons that had licensed characters. <laughs> 300% in this I'm boom. I'm not shocked. And honestly, these shows only existed to sell toys and other products. Mm-hmm. Only to sell toys. I mean, we're talking licensed cartoon characters like Garfield, uh, the Smurfs, mm-hmm. Care Bears, Snorks, which I love the Snorks. I had one yeah. when I was a kid. It was a stuffed animal. Wow. And like the Chipmunks. I mean, there's this list goes on and on. And on. Alvin and the Chipmunks? Yeah, Alvin and Chipmunks. Just to clarify. I mean, when did Beanie Babies become a thing? Like, that was a thing, too. In the 80s and 90s, yeah. God, Furbies. I mean, come on. We can keep listing all these things for for days. The most terrifying of... We'll do a Furbies episode. I was about to say, we're going to do a collective WTF. Where we collect a bunch of stories. Furby stories. Send in your Furby story, because we all have one. Go ahead and send us your Furby story about how it scared the living daylights out of you. Or your family, because mine involves my my parents. My parents didn't like the Furby. <sighs> They're so creepy. Yeah. By maybe for like Christmas, we'll be we'll do a Furby episode because we. Oh yeah, that'd be fun. We got all of ours. Me and my sisters got them all for Christmas one year. I did too. I'm so excited. My aunt, um, my great, I still remember. My great aunt got us one because they couldn't get them anywhere. And yeah. she was traveling for work at the time. And nobody else that we knew like traveled. She was like the traveler. Oh, nice. Shout out to my Mimi. And she brought them back from somewhere, other place that had them. That's cool. Yeah. That's fun. Mm-hmm. Now, we're about to pull. So we're not quite full circle, but we're looping some circles back in. We're pulling mm-hmm. some spirals and some loopholes, all right? Spirographing it. Spirographing it. This is why I said it's an important detail that Hasbro bought Romper Room Inc. Mm-hmm. A mere decade before this happened, right? Man. He's like 69. Now it's 80. Because Hasbro, among others, I'm sure, created shows to specifically sell their own products. If it weren't for Reagan's great deregulation, (laughs) the 80s never would have seen some of Hasbro's finest work, cartoons such as G.I. Joe and Transformers. Yep. Imagine a world without Transformers because Reagan didn't let them do whatever they wanted. So you said more than meets the eye earlier. I was like, hey. (laughs) (laughs) I'll be able to use that. These two shows gi joe and transformers if you're from the 80s like if you grew up then you know what we're talking about right now of course these two shows have been referred to as a master class in selling products to children there are some insane stats mentioned in this article i read which will be linked in our show notes um but the one i found most fascinating was that in 1986, I'm so excited, the 1986 Transformers movie featured the deaths of a few major characters, including Optimus Prime. Mm-hmm. And I have this in all caps, just so they could get rid of those discontinued products and introduce a new line of characters and sell all the new toys that same 
year. Everybody already has an Optimus Prime. So they discontinued Optimus Prime. Jeez. And the example given in this in this article was like, imagine if at the height of SpongeBob SquarePants, they just killed off SpongeBob <laughs> SquarePants. Like what season three? I can't fathom. They were like people were so devastated. I, yeah, that's a big deal. They had to resurrect Optimus Prime. They gave him the old Sherlock Holmes mm. uh, resurrection. They call that a Disney death, by the way. I've been a Disney death. I've been falling into the TV tropes. Dot com website, mm-hmm. which is hilarious, honestly, and I'm sure we'll end up referencing them a good bit oh, because it's funny. But a Disney death is when a character seemingly is like, oh, no, there's no way they can escape. It's over. Krista oh, wow. flies into the mouth of the tree and it's done, you know, in Ferngully, that kind of thing. And then later they're found like unconscious, but breathing. Kind yeah, of thing. this yeah. is exactly it. That's, that trope is literally called a, a Disney death. Although, I mean, Disney killed off characters, so I don't really know why it's called a Disney death because... That didn't, you know, that didn't always uh, happen. They did kill people. You're right. But I guess did. maybe they popularized the idea of like of killing like, a character and then bringing it really. back. You make, you make the, um, you, you create the emotional impact without losing the character, basically. Right. Which they used this emotional impact in the case of Transformers and Optimus Prime to just make a shit ton of money. Because they were like, oh, you mean people, let's bring him back. <laughs> let's keep selling Optimus Prime. Toys. I was going to say, not only that, but now that he died, he was even more beloved, and they probably sold more Optimus Prime. It's the new toys. Optimus Prime. So now if you didn't have one before, you can get one now because he's the resurrected Optimus Prime. Mm. Crazy stuff. Don't you want a matching set, oh, kids? Oh, Lord. I do. I want it. God. If you have one, send it to me. I want it. <laughs> Cereal and junk food companies were now free to completely disguise their commercials as cartoons. Yeah. This is why every single sugary breakfast cereal has a cartoon mascot. Yep. I remember studying that. It's why nearly every product that's catered specifically to children has always had a character of some sort or utilized a character from a cartoon or TV show to sell that product mm-hmm. using anthropomorphism as a common yes. tactic. Very effective on me. I mean, very effective. It's effective on children. They, there were studies, I didn't really write it all out, but there there are studies into how effective humanizing an animal Mm -hmm. and making it talk to you i mean 100 percent. children respond better to animals talking to them than actual humans i'm head over heels of course yes i want to that i'm i'm the case study on that. little baby kaylin i wouldn't probably listen to an adult man but like tony the tiger tells me something i hear him scary isn't that scary hey kid it is scary my name's tony i just loved animals so much i loved animals more than you know people so. This is also why Joe Camel sold cigarettes mm. to make them more appealing to children. I think I did a st- like we st- did a case study on Camel cigarettes. Yeah, it's bad. And isn't that twisted? Welcome to the eighties, everybody. Toys, junk food, pester power. <laughs> pester power. <laughs> yeah. Right. All of this insanity was enough for Congress to take a look at it in nineteen eighty-eight. You know, they decided to put some more guidelines in place. There was a limit to the number of, of minutes a net work could air commercials. It differed between weekdays and weekends. Mm-hmm. Cartoons also had to have some kind of educational component, such yes. as G.I. Joe's, and knowing is half the battle. I do recall. And this passed at a 328 to 78 vote in the House of Representatives. But as his last act as president in November 1988, Reagan vetoed this bill. Wow. So you might be asking yourself, how are parents okay with this? It was enough to be put to a vote and to win the vote to change all of this, why was it allowed to continue? Yeah. Why weren't more parents invested in the types of entertainment their children were consuming? Why didn't somebody do something? After the period of time when people 
have realized what's happening, right? Parents understand this whole. Yes, I mean, now we know. The average layperson probably wasn't thinking real hard about why the kid was screaming for half a meal in the back seat. You know, like average person says bright colors, funny stuff, kids like it, whatever. Like maybe, yeah. It, it doesn't seem insidious in the average moment in the eighties, right. early eighties in that American family. You know what I mean? Like, right, right. They don't. They can tell it's effective, but they don't know what it's doing. It was ignorance, right? Mm-hmm. Like, and I don't know how much of that was willful ignorance or how much of it was just complacency. Maybe parents didn't know what their kids were watching. Maybe it was ignorance. But I think mostly they just didn't care. And this was for a very good, very bad, and very dark reason. A reason that we'll get into next week on part two of the dark origins of children's programming. That's part one. Man, I'm I'm about this. That's it. We're about halfway there now. It's very fascinating to understand exactly. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, but a lot of this stuff. Like, I'm, go ahead. Just no, no you're good. Go ahead. I feel. I just have feelings. You feeling the things? No, trust me. I was doing all this research yesterday. I went to the store and bought bagel bites because <laughs> I was like, I have to have something like that. I can't not now. <clears throat> I made a, a playlist of '80s and '90s Fever Dream <sighs> credits songs. So pretty much every cartoon movie from the '80s and '90s had the R&B. Uh, the title song yeah. was created in like an R&B version with some popular pop or R&B singer from the 90s. I made a playlist of that and of that's what I've been listening to all week. That's amazing. We'll have to share that playlist. Heck yeah. So again, yeah, we are about halfway with all our, our detail, but that felt, to me, it kind of felt slow because it's just pure background. Mm-hmm. Now we're getting into a lot of the darkness. This is, that was kind of the how it became possible. Right. And now a lot of what we're about to get into is what happened, is what happened with it. And yeah. this is more of what influenced the con- the types of content. So now they could make all the content they wanted. A lot of what we're about to talk about is how that content became so, so, so dark mm. by the time we were children in the early 90s. Man. So make sure you join us next Saturday for part two. We hope you enjoyed this. Hope it gets your October off to a great start. And we'd also really appreciate it as a brand new podcast if you would rate, review, and subscribe. That'd be fantastic. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening to That's Pretty Dark, written and produced by Christian Baxter Mott and Kaylin Andrews. Our music is composed by Jonathan Simmons, and our art is provided by Paige Garland at Power Girl Illustration. Join the collective nostalgia and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at That's Pretty Dark Podcast. Share your experiences and let us know what shows, films, or villains still haunt you from childhood at That's Pretty Dark Podcast at gmail.com. Remember, You're never really alone. So until next time, sweet dreams, everyone.